Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is supply chain, cash or trash with my friend, Seth Page. How's it going, Seth? <laughs> Doing well. Thank you very much, Joe. I like the title. The title is uh, from Seth. So we'll get into what that means. Seth's, Seth's a very interesting guy. He's got an interesting brain. I think you'll find that today. So Seth, please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, hi, uh, thanks very much, Joe. Uh, my name is Seth Page. I'm the COO of uh, Throughput.ai, and we are a supply chain AI orchestration company, which really means how do you leverage the industrial data that every company already has today to achieve better business, operational, and financial results? Right. Yep. And it, it's called Throughput AI, and they will get you throughput. And it's interesting, we're all in the business. Everybody listening to this podcast is in the throughput business, but they don't think of it that way. We think of our own little silo, like here's what I do. I move trucks or I move I move stuff in warehouses. We don't think of ourselves as part of that that supply chain that is focused on throughput. But anyway, Seth, you have a real interesting background. We were blabbing about it too much beforehand. So but tell tell everyone a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights. Yeah, I actually, uh, yeah, after London as a small kid, I was uh, born and raised in Silicon Valley. I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, about 11 acres up in the Redwoods. And um, after going to Happy Valley Elementary School, which I'm sure no one cares about, but it was quite nice. You know, university was UC Santa Cruz two years until I just had to get out of the house. But I could stay at home, work, and, uh, and, and save, on, uh, <laughs> save on housing. I graduated from UC Irvine, a double major in industrial economics and then uh, German linguistics and literature because, you know, why not torture yourself while you have a chance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mom, were mom and dad, were, did they work in Silicon Valley? Or were they part of the tech? That would have been real early in the tech if that, that. Yeah, no, they didn't. A lot of our neighbors, their parents did. I mean, this is the 70s and 80s. So Apple was just starting. Right. You know, you had Tandys, you had Sinclairs. You know, my days were Vic 20s and Tandys and Commodore 64s and, and, and Ataris and what have you. Yeah, well, Silicon action. Valley wasn't Silicon Valley really. Well, I guess you had HP there. They were the kind of the early, yeah, right? H- HP's right there in Palo Alto. Xerox Park was there. If you went to Santa Cruz, it was SCO, which was Santa Cruz Operations, one of the first Unix systems. You had a big headphone company there. I'm drawing a blank on their name, but uh, Plantronics was obviously right. there. And oh my God, yeah, we all had those. Yeah, and in Banana Republic. I mean, back when it was, you know, adventuring shorts and, and, and khakis and uh, Pizza My Heart and Out of Wall of Juice, that was all Santa Cruz. You know what? This is, I just, I learned this maybe 10 years ago. Conway Trucking, Conway which now became part of XPO, they were they were a trucking company and they were based in Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley. And all of a sudden they've got this big truck yard and they're like, what, are we, what? we're sitting on millions and millions of dollars worth of land. Yeah. So they moved their headquarters from Silicon Valley and now they moved to Ann Arbor, which became their headquarters. Then they got bought by XPO. But I was thinking that must have been probably their, one of their best years when they said, let's sell all this land we're on. Hopefully they owned it and then lease it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they were probably getting taxed out of it. I mean, I, my, my grandma grew up in, in San Francisco, you know, the, the early last century. And they used to actually take the dirt road, which was El Camino, where all the tech companies are on. They take a dirt road four hours from San Francisco down to the uncle's uh, farms and pick, pick fruit all summer. 
right? Because it was all <laughs> orchards and fields. And uh, one of my one of my deals, the VCs actually, that's how the, back in the 60s, nearly 70s, I used to drive around to all of the low-slung one-story industrial buildings and stick their heads into every garage that was open to see if people were building electronics. That's how they, and they'd write checks on the spot, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 bucks. So that was early LinkedIn. (laughs) That was the sixties and early seventies. That was Pitch Johnson and Tim Draper's father, right? Oh, wow. Kind of two of the pioneers. So after you were in school, what, tell us a little bit about your career. I know you've done a lot of great things in it. So tell us a little bit about, give us the career highlights. Yeah, well, after Santa Cruz, I actually went to UC Irvine. I went to Göttingen on a scholarship in Germany, their top school. Then I went to Thunderbird, a global school, global school of business, to get my master's. And, you know, from the days, I've been working since I was 12, you know, programming, hacking, freaking. I worked in warehouses, packaging, shipping, manufacturing, retail stores, mortuaries, vitamin packers, wedding chapels, <laughs> surfing bikini shops, which were probably the better job, uh, and bartending, obviously, uh, through college. So I, I did all of that pre, pre-career like many of us have, which I think puts a certain uh, work ethic in you that you're kind of willing to, to do anything. You know, COO is Learn my title. It's really chief janitor <laughs> is really what I do. It's like I take out the trash and, and I write, you know, I write POs. So really, I, I stayed in Germany. Uh, after graduating, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I got this great job doing cross-border deals for the state of California. So we were actually linking up high-tech and entertainment companies from California, bringing them to Europe, and taking all these newer technologies to all of these old legacy companies and, and, and incumbents across all of Europe and showing them new ways of doing, of, of changing their businesses. So if you will, kind of the early days of digital transformation back in the 90s when it was really just IT. You know, how do you even use right. technology in your company to get better results? And we're, we're talking, you know, pre-client server and client server days, old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting time because you you see, I remember my first first few computers weren't connected to the internet. <laughs> and it's funny when I tell people that they go, my kids that they go, well, what did you use it for? I was like, I guess like a giant typewriter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they cost fifty. They cost Forty five hundred dollars. <laughs> Word processing. It was spreadsheets. You know, notes one, two, three. I mean, Lotus. I, I, I you know, I actually had a, a hundred fifty baud half duplex. You know, acoustic coupler modem back. You know, back in the early eighties, and a three hundred baud, and a twelve hundred baud, and a twenty four hundred baud. And we used to use the uh, the Weiss terminals up at UC Santa Cruz too, right? And that got you onto the ARPANET, which was effectively the DARPANET, which became the internet, because uh, UC Santa Cruz and UC Irvine were on the backbone, but. It was interesting because those days really, really hit you because you started helping all these companies out in the 90s and realizing, you know, hey, I got to get in on this and, and you know, see how to work with these startups. And right. the best way to do that was to, to get on the funding side. So I, I, I crossed into the dark side. I got into investment banking and private equity and funding and venture capital through a lot of the later 90s and late 2000s. And it was really seeing how a lot of entrepreneurs got screwed, how a lot of companies got screwed, how a lot of companies that were actually quite profitable and doing well would get bought out by private equity and then right-sized. And then the employees screwed <laughs> so that the PE right. firms could pull more money out. And you really started to see how stacked the financial world was against the operational world, which is where the supply chain works. And so I really learned the dirty secrets of deal structuring and, and learning how to see investors screwed and workers screwed, you learned how to actually protect your own business when you went out and started your own against those exact same problems that I'd say are still rampant in the industry today. So that, that's what oh, yeah. got me to my first startup back in 1999. That was the first of eight startups. Wow. So what kind of startups were you in? 
So I started off in, in large enterprise fintech, you know, bank to bank, global transactions, yep. back end, big data, machine learning, AI, telco, mobile, security. That turned to industrial AI, industrial IoT, industrial 4.0, and now where we are right now in supply chain AI. So it's eight companies, six of them were acquired. And, you know, I, I think if you look at the one thread between them all, it's really no matter what type of technologies they were, because these are all just technologies. They're just there to help you do something better, right? AI is just a tool. It's not a religion. It's right. really how do you aggregate and enrich and leverage data that businesses already have so that they can make better decisions with the people and the resources that they already have. That's really what right. you do in all of these businesses, right? It's, it's, right. it's just bringing tools in that help people do a better job and hopefully make their lives easier. So we aren't working 12 and 15 hour days anymore. Right. So when and why did you join Throughput? You are a very accomplished man. You had lots of opportunities. Why did you choose to do Throughput? Yeah, well, see, I had a wife and kids and two dogs, so you, you definitely always have to keep moving forward as, as college got more expensive. No, I, it, it's, you know, more seriously, it was, if you, you know, in, in, when you do, do eight startups, and I've funded and done deals with many dozen more before that, you, you start to take a look at what are the companies and technologies that are just doing incremental changes, and they're just doing something a little bit better and, and making a bunch of money off it. And who are the companies or which are the companies that are actually doing, you know, evolutionary changes that are really looking at a problem saying, how do we tackle something that's that's big problem and try to solve it in a way that's better for the company, better for the workers, better for shareholders and better preferably right. for society as well. And one of the things I noticed in, in talking to all these companies was that, you know, waste was rampant across supply chains. Right. And as we started to right. dig in deeper and deeper, you look at the, this thing that we all have to have these so-called end-to-end supply chains is there's so many different people who are focused on their own KPIs and goals that they're not focused on each other and what's work going on upstream and downstream. They're just kind of focused in their four, right. four corners of the warehouse or the freight yard or even the, yeah. the manufacturing or the raw materials of the quarry. And if you have all these data sources that are siloed. If you're not trying to solve all these problems systemically, then really you just have a bunch of people who who are marching in different directions. And we all know that that armies that march in different directions never ended up going over going over the uh, the finish line. So I started putting it together with the CEO of the company who I had met, and we actually realized that when you quantified it, out of the ninety trillion dollar economy we have today in the U.S., twenty five trillion dollars of that is waste that's endemic in the supply chain which that's a huge problem, but it's also a huge opportunity. And so the global, the global economy is $90 trillion. And say that again, what, how much of that is waste? It's estimated that $25 trillion of that $90 trillion is waste. So that's like almost, what, almost 30%. About 30% on the average, yeah. So that's why you joined Throughput. Is that you said, hey, let's go after that enormous chunk of waste. So when we were prepping for this, uh, we had all, you were saying titles, hey, look, your supply chain is your biggest opportunity and your biggest problem. It's your savior. It's also what's going to kill you. And we had all these different titles and we came up with cash or trash. So the supply chain, obviously, it's, 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 uh, feeds us, right? It moves all the stuff that we're all sitting on and all the stuff we're using, everything we eat, right? It's fantastic. But we also know there's an enormous amount of waste. And that is, 25 trillion and you think about that that is that's 
that's a lot of Mercedes being rolled off the pier into the water to never be seen again. Well, again. if you think in terms of companies, that's a lot of money lost. If you think in terms of the environment, that's a lot of trash created that that benefited no one, right? Yeah. And you think of like poor people who we have still some people who are not poor in the world. And you go, yeah, we threw out a whole bunch of electronics. We threw out a whole bunch of food and and they're saying, really? Uh, <laughs> I'll take them, right? We'll trash pick. So, so why why do we create? Well, well, talk about why there is that much literal trash in our supply chain. Why why are one third approximately some worse, some better? Why is one third of our supply chain producing stuff that never adds value that goes to trash? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's really a mismatch. If, if you look at the way we've done business, it's, it, it's as many tools as we have. We've got all these different point solutions. And it's really a mismatch between what's your actual demand, things that consumers really want right now at this moment or when they're going to get it at some point in the future with your, with your actual capacity to deliver that. And what most companies do, the vast, vast majority is they've got, you know, they've got their demand forecasting. They've got their, you know, their business planning tools. They're using assumptions that are months, if not years old. They're using tools that are many years, sometimes decades old. And they're coming up with false models of demand. So they're not really looking at demand today. They're looking at what they think demand is going to be six months from now, nine months from now, 12 months from now, when I need to know what are consumers going to want to buy today, tomorrow, in the next five to 10 or 15 days, because that's what your real demand is. And so if you're not doing demand sensing, which is actually sensing real demand, and then reorienting your supply chain to match that capacity with your actual capacity capability, then you have an absolute mismatch on your supply chain. And every single step along the way is going to be another iteration of mismatch. So you've got the wrong products being produced at the wrong time. They're being misrouted in the most inefficient or less efficient ways to the wrong stores, to the wrong consumers who have different needs. And yeah, a lot of stuff gets bought but a ridiculous amount of things also get thrown away. They expire. They don't get bought. They get discounted. They go through reverse logistics. Seven pairs of shoes get sent out. Six shoes, a pair of shoes get come back through, uh, you know, through, through the Zappos and the Amazons of the world. And no one's doing this because they're mean or they're evil. It's just everyone's focused on, hey, my uptime is OEE and MTTR and MTTA if I'm sitting in a manufacturing plant. Right. I'm not worried about the guys down in warehousing and logistics. That's their problem. They take care of that. Right. And vice versa. Those guys are looking upstream and going, I just got to move what comes in. Right. So so you talked about when we're prepping that that we have all these we have this long supply chain. Let's just say it's 16 weeks long. And let's just say there's 25 players in it, which could be very small. Some could have 300, 500, thousands. Right. And. Everybody locally is optimizing their own situation. So Seth asked me to make a hundred of these and I'm making a hundred and I'm sending them to him. And then Seth says, I've been asked to make 90 of these for the guy upstream. I'm making those. And we have this supply chain that everybody's, I shouldn't say everybody, we're all trying to make money locally, right? And we're all all trying. And I think this this is a situation where there's a local optimal, but it's just like if you've ever done a timeline, and everybody adds a little bit of an extra day or two for themselves or an extra week or two, pretty soon you go, wow, how can this take 17 weeks? Well, it really only takes about six weeks if we do it right, but we all added a little extra waste. And that's inventory. And, and, and we, we have extra inventory. Well, I'm wrong way to say it. We built factories that are too big to build more because that's what we thought the demand was. 
and then I made it. I shipped it upstream, and I'm I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't see when it, so when you, when Seth says thirty percent is waste, I, I I sold what I made. What are you talking about, Seth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, what you get is a lot of locally optimized points along that supply chain that's systemically inefficient if you look at the entire supply chain end to end and you end up getting low OTIF right on time and full rates where it's really OTIF means you've got low customer service levels you're not giving the customer what they want at the right time and that's just higher costs higher waste higher transportation and higher CO2 by the way too right it's not good for the environment right no that's and this is super important in the and right now we know uh, we had this conversation 80% 80% of the emissions, the greenhouse gases that we're all worried about are 80% of that is from the supply chain. Yeah. So so we're going to they're going to look to us and they're going to say what are you going to do and you say well we're using less paper towels in the bathroom. Okay. Yeah, good start. <laughs> is there something else we might do? Well, one thing we could do is let's stop building too much stuff and throwing it out. And Seth, talk about the chicken analogy because you were talking about the chicken that <laughs> that you ate in your refrigerator, and it's a perfect example. Yeah, no, I, it's, I mean it's it's kind of stupid, but it's you know, poultry is one of the, the industries we're involved in meats and a lot of food and ag and uh, and cement too, and and there's so many chickens. I mean, billions of chickens are killed a year. And I remember coming home from a work trip, and I'm digging through the you know I always eat all the leftovers in our house. I'm digging through the back, and I find this full, beautiful whole chicken in the back golden brown and I pull it out and I'm starting to cut it up. My wife's like, no, 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 don't eat that. We, we bought that like a week and a half ago. We were gone. And I'm like, well, why didn't you eat it? She's like, oh, we never got around to it, which, you know, we got two kids, things are busy, things happen. Right. But this happens quite often in every family, particularly in the right. Western world. And that chicken, I mean, you know, we're talking, it was led as a chick, it was fed, it was moved around, it was processed, it was killed, it lost its life, it was shipped to a store. Some family, most likely an SUV or in a minivan, drove there, wasted gas, picked it up, drove it home, cooled it down along the whole way. It's been in a cold chain, kept it cool after it had been warmed and cooled again for a week and a half. And I cut it out to eat it. And where did it end up? It ends up in the trash. And by the way, the house we're at now, we no longer have compost, which is most of our trash in our last house. So it didn't even get composted back into fertilizer. It's just out right. in the landfill somewhere. So that is that entire chicken times right. millions of times a day is just complete, utter waste. And that's waste that in a lot of ways the supply chain doesn't even know about. But the waste that's perhaps even worse is when it's it's at a store and you say, hey, I've got 100 units of this chicken and I know we sell. I'm going to have my next shipment is in a week. And I know I'm only going to sell 40 and I get 60 and I throw them out. You throw something out at the end of the supply chain. And and what's not, you know, one of the things I've, I've this came up with Lineage Logistics was on, they said something along the lines of, if we know we're only going to sell 40, we can get some of that data and start acting on it and say, hey, you know what? We're only going to sell 40 and we and it's good for another week. Let's let's do, donate 60 to a food food bank. You know, but th- that's just one example, and it's a very small one. But once we start having better decision making, we stop delivering. And right now, during the pandemic, we as consumers started hoarding. You yeah. better believe pr- procurement people are doing some of the same because some the boss came down and kicked him in the butt and said, "Where's our inventory?" So when they have the opportunity, they're going to say, "Never again." I'm going to fill the shelves with inventory, and I'm safe. But the reality is, a lot of that inventory is going to get thrown out. Yeah. Well, and, and if we look at it now, we have a lot of our customers. You know, some customers will only be like Amazon. They just want to move as much volume as they can. So just produce, produce, produce. And that means killing those machines, running them 24 if missing, seven, reducing your changeovers as much as possible, and just getting product out because there's demand in general. 
And that may sell $3 million more this year, which is great. But the, the waste side and the reverse logistics side is that there's a ton of waste endemic in that. And if you just turn around, use the AI, the supply chain data you already have to look at the mix you have of products and the actual demand that your customers want and reorient your supply chain to handle these additional products that are in higher demand that you can get more inventory turns on, you could actually make nine to $12 million more. So 3 million sounds like a lot, but it's your worst case scenario because all you're doing is producing more that's not really necessarily in demand versus producing what people really want at that point in time. And that takes a change of thinking, but the thinking really comes because most people don't have the data because the data is stuck in the silo upstream or it's stuck in the silo downstream. So we've got all these silos, and so you think about a, a, a complex, so think about like my microphone that I'm just touching, shouldn't touch, but <laughs> that microphone probably made in Asia, and there's hundreds of, hundreds of suppliers, right? And they're all coming together, and hopefully they have some sense of their production numbers and they can pull through, but chances are there's a whole bunch of stuff that is obsolete on their shelves, and by the way, You've you mentioned this before. If you're the CFO or if you're the controller of that facility, rather than say that is inventory is now a liability, now it's it's garbage, and I have to take it and and say to the boss that is garbage and it needs to be thrown out. Rather than do that, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> honestly, is there is a huge call amount. it an asset. <laughs> yeah, is it an asset or liability? On in if you look at financial accounting, anything in inventory is an asset, right? And the problem is if you actually do throughput accounting and look at that, anything that's above a certain minimal inventory that you want to keep on hand, that's just locked up working capital that could be reinvested elsewhere. It could be reinvested in workers and capital expenditure, could go back to investors, it could go to shareholders, it could go into new trucks, whatever it is, but it could be reinvested back into the company. And CFOs, I think they're probably the most guilty of this because as long as they're hitting a certain metric, of profitability that hits their EPS and Wall Street's happy with them, everyone's making their bonuses. But meanwhile, then at the warehouse, you've got Amazon workers peeing in bottles, right? They don't have resource or money. You got their truck drivers peeing in bottles. And anyone who works in the supply chain, logistics, manufacturing knows that they're always undersupplied, they're under-resourced, they're under-budgeted, but they're expected right. to produce more and more right. and move more and more goods. And what it comes down to is the CFO is sitting on a massive amount of obliterated or ignored working capital and profits that are in the supply chain. They're endemic. They're locked up in that right. supply chain and being wasted. And my thing is you're doing your, not just your employees and your suppliers a disservice, you're doing your investors a disservice. That's right. so much money that could get deployed better elsewhere. And if you're deploying that better, you're actually in a more competitive situation than your cohorts right. in that industry. And as, as a great example, we work with, with a lot of uh, cement and building material companies. And from an emissions point of view, right, 10% of all global right. emissions come from the cement supply chain. Yet every single house in, in the U.S. And, and in the world, really, for the most part, has cement in it. Almost everything we buy, right. almost every road we drive on cement is critical. It's been here for thousands of years, cement and, right. and concrete in different forms back to the Romans and before them. So it's, it's something that we need. It's not going away. But if you can... If you can optimize that supply chain and get rid of the waste, you have a huge ability to reduce not just emissions, but make those companies more profitable. So the ones right. we're working with closely are the ones that are able to, to, to optimize their supply chains and get the right products to market at the right time, reduce their capex where they don't need it, increase their spending where they do need it, and have a more profitable company, which ultimately means they're making more money, their right. employees are getting paid better, they're producing less waste. Right. And they're going to have a higher share price, which just keeps rewarding them and rewarding them versus companies that keep dragging their feet. It's kind of the leaders versus the laggards, if you will. 
Right. So earlier on the podcast, you said we all want to make better decisions in the supply chain. So we're we're not deliberately creating thirty percent waste, right? <laughs> no, we're all no. we're not trying to create trash. We're trying to create cash. So we're all making the best decisions we can. So and you said, you know. We're not always able to because we're all siloed in this this supply chain. From for, it'd be nice if I could say I have from end to end, from the time I make the order to the time I get paid, I have visibility. I not only do I have visibility, I have I'm connected. I'm collaborating along the way. You know that truck's late. I'm, this order's late. All, I'm, I'm able to constantly collaborate. That's what we're looking for. We're not quite there yet. We're still too siloed, but. If you so, we all want throughput. And could you define throughput for us? Yeah, if you think of throughput, you know, it's 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 really just flow, right? So it's kind of the speed that a company is able to generate money through sales, and that becomes the flow of goods through its pipeline, right? So you've got material flow in one direction, which means cash flow in the other direction. So right. when you think of throughput, think of flow. And if you think of any, any type of flow, whether it's liquid, whether thing, if you have a bottleneck, if you're squeezing down on a pipe, you have a restriction, you have a bottleneck, your flow is reduced. So it doesn't matter what you do upstream. It doesn't matter what you do downstream. You are never going to go faster than that weakest link right there. And so you have to understand where your biggest bottleneck is, where the other bottlenecks could be that pop up. And you right. have to reorientate everything around that because that is going to be what determines how much you create. And that's going to ultimately determine your product mix. Right. We're going to come back and talk about the port because I know when they start talking about the, the port congestion and they said, well, I'll come back to that. I won't let, I won't let you get away, Seth, <laughs> without talking about that. But so we all want throughput and I'm an automotive guy and, you know, throughput is a big part of, you know, the, uh, of the business is maximizing throughput. And in a lot of ways it's taking, here's the demand sensing or demand. So we usually didn't have demand sensing. We just said, here's the demand. Yeah, um, here's our forecast. Our here's our forecast. forecast. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's not because the customer said they want it. They said, no, we're... And in automotive, every single product you make, you sell. You might discount it, but every single product is $40,000. So you're going to sell it. You might sell it for 22000 a year later. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I doubt they're discounted that much, but they do get discounted. But every single tr- vehicle... And that's an unusual business, though. So... We would always say we have to we have to figure out what to make, and we always use throughput. And here was the problem: all that siloed information. We would take all sorts of uh, inputs, and I swear I'm not I'm not just saying this to um, make your software seem you know like the only answer. We could create throughput, but it was like it was almost like you had to get sorcerers, like three sorcerers <laughs> together and touch swords. It was really, really hard. And I remember, I'll be honest, I was a lean practitioner. I was yeah. doing the workshops. If you were to left, leave me to my own devices, I'm not so sure I could come up with the proper throughput. Because you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take, here's our demand and here's our capacity, our, you know, our, our available capacity, and you're trying to align it. And it's not easy. It's not. And it's really not because we we've kind of built ourselves this 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 Babylon all these different you know you look at it, you've got your demand forecasting system your SNOP system you got your IMS your TMS your WMS systems down in the warehouses and transportation inventory you've got your ERP system obviously and your, and your DRP systems and MES systems and PLC systems and you know and, and sales and all CRM and, and dozens yeah, basically any three letter acronym you could come up with is somewhere in the supply chain but. They've come up through different vendors over the decades, really over the last half century. They're all siloed. They've popped up at different times. They're not made to talk to each other. And so everyone's 
all of those those things are optimizing for what they think they should optimize for without little or any input from what's up or downstream. So what we do is we say, listen, you don't rip, need to rip or replace anything because you're not going to change the engine on the plane that's flying at 36,000 feet, right, 400 miles right. an hour. What we do is we say, look at all the data you already have that's been produced in some cases for decades. Look at the data that's being spit out in real time. If you can take that and use AI to pull it together, to standardize it and to synchronize it in real time, and then allow you to look systemically at your entire end-to-end -end supply chain, you can see where your bottlenecks are, where they're popping up, where you're losing money, where you're making money. And a lot of times, where you're just leaving money on the table. You're shipping right. everything to DC1 when two-thirds uh, two, two of your goods should be going to DC2, 3, 4, and 5 because they get to the end customer better with a, with a, a faster go-to-market, better timing in the right product market. Yep. And so it's like, yeah, you're profitable, but you could be 4% more profitable if you just use the data you already have. But you have to use AI because no human, like you said, no person can crunch through that much data. Two right. billion rows of data constantly changing does not a happy data scientist make. Right. So one other thing related to this is, you know, it's funny. If you guys if should ever want to learn more about throughput, and I really think you should because this is coming. There, There's just no reason that we would not keep going more, further. And it's funny, you mentioned some reasons we wouldn't, and it's usually because it's the status quo. But there was a book written many years ago about, called The Goal, and it is where the theory of constraints comes. And by the way, theory of constraints, just saying it, you go, oh, God, please don't. You know, I'm going to be dragged into and And I remember when I was first exposed to theory of constraints, it has almost a, like a religious feel to it for some people. They would call themselves, I'm, I'm a Jonah, because Jonah was the star of this fable, The Goal. And it absolutely positively is all the right stuff. It's just, it's not always used. It's not always, it's not easily accessible. And that's why Goldratt, who wrote the book, made it a fable. He made it, he called it the goal. And he said, what's the goal? The goal is to make money. And then he takes you through all this. And it's funny, even though he tries to simplify it, it's not easy. So you could read the goal, you could study theory of constraints, and I guarantee you, you can't do what software does what, what throughput it's it's it so when i first talked to ali raza your co-founder ceo i was like oh yeah <laughs> trust me i've been dragged down this theory of constraint and by the way your eyes glaze over when somebody starts going here's this data here's this data and you go what am i a machine i, I can't do this well now there literally is a machine so talk about throughput accounting versus standard accounting yeah, well, and it's great you mentioned because actually, uh, yeah, four, four of Eli Goldrath's uh, former partners, uh, two of them are actually on our advisory board and shareholders, and two others we collaborate very closely. Right. So, a, a big part of our software, not all of it, is looking at leading theories like the theory of constraints, like the fluid dynamics, like physics, you know, like like heat transfer. But we don't have to know that. You guys know that. Yeah, we, we have do. To. <laughs> Lots of different algorithms that no human wants to crunch through because you're you're just running everything in parallel. But theory of constraints is is you know. It, if you're not using a TOC consultant in-house full-time or working with a third party who's helping you do it, the, the biggest problem with it is, is bottleneck shift over time. So you can identify a bottleneck at one point in time, but once you start to fix that bottleneck or you add capacity to it or you do something to alleviate it, then a bottleneck pops up somewhere else. And so there's, there's always a bottleneck. There's always a right. least the weakest link somewhere. And so if you're not looking at the data and constantly understand how to optimize all parts of the business, you're going to miss the main bottleneck and all of the resultant bottlenecks that come up from your 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 additional downstream and upstream behavior because you have bullet effects every time, right. right? That are happening in real time and happening every time you move the bottleneck around. And so 
Theory of Constraints is one of those ones that is incredibly powerful and it helps so many companies out if they do it, but it really takes a change of thinking too. And if you're not willing to change your business overnight, then you should look at saying, how do I use the data that's there that automatically takes these theories into account for me and makes recommendations right. to my team? Because my team members, they're domain experts, they know their stuff, but they're not data scientists, they're not data engineers, they're not gonna crunch billions of rows of data and, and, and no person wants, no human wants to do that. So let the, the software, whether it's ours or someone else's, do the number crunching for you. That's why we have calculators. That's why we have computers right. and spreadsheets and, and supercomputers right. and come up with the recommendations and let the humans take those TOC type recommendations, three constraints and put them into effect. Because at the end of the day, economic or financial accounting, call it gap or, or international standards and throughput accounting, mathematically, they connect in the background, right? You can connect those with our, with our software, for example, but in the real world, the CFO in the C-suite are talking financial accounting, the people on the ground are effectively, whether they know it or not, are optimizing in a, a throughput accounting type of way without knowing it. And those right. two worlds don't speak to each other. They speak different right. languages and they're focused on different KPIs. But this is but this is one of the reasons we end up with so much stuff that gets trashed. This is why we have, basically what's crazy is, you know, in a world that is very concerned about greenhouse gases, very concerned with sustainability, we are, creating one third one third of what we do is creating something that so we've made it built a factory made too much moved too much stored too much somewhere along the line it got <laughs> abandoned and you know it's it, it's interesting i worked with a company as a i was a consultant and i remember uh, the new vp of the company came in and there was all of this old inventory and the first thing he said oh geez oh pete that stuff's ancient we're never going to sell that right and so it it, it was I think it was millions. And this is the reality of, you mentioned the uh, accounting. The previous VP would have never said, I'm taking that out. I'm calling that what it is. I'm calling that trash, trash. He called it, I'm going to sell that soon. So I'm calling these ancient obsolete beasts of machinery, I'm calling it assets. And it wasn't. But if he, but if he, but he recognized, if he said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to call that what it is you miss your bonus. Yeah, so exactly. so in a lot of ways in a lot of ways we don't find this garbage in the system until somebody has to come clean or you switch jobs and Seth gets Joe's job and goes holy crap look at all this old inventory that it, this stuff is ancient and Joe is calling it assets. Yeah, and it's not and in throughput accounting it is what it is. it's locked up working capital that could be deployed better elsewhere. Right. That right. asset. If you look at economic or, or financial accounting, it's an asset. It's on your balance sheet. It's right. a good thing. And if right. you look at we, we looked at a client recently and again we have some clients that sixty percent of what they sell goes obsolete or expires during right. transit. So it never makes it to market. And we looked at one client and they had ten percent of their warehouse was obsolete goods that they were never gonna sell, but they weren't discounting it. They right. weren't selling off to a third party. They weren't, they weren't selling off to a foreign country where it might be used elsewhere. It was just taking up space. So not only is it an asset that could be working capital, but it was taking up floor space and causing them to be more inefficient in how they allocated warehouse space. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I built extra. I stored extra. <laughs> I moved extra, stored it somewhere else. I'm paying, I have, a, I have warehouse space to store garbage. And you know, it's interesting if you find what Amazon's doing right now. Amazon saying you can work with us on our, you know, fulfillment by Amazon, 
but you won't store stuff here. You're not going to have a whole bunch of SKUs that don't move. We we are a fulfillment company, not a storage company. And I talk to a lot of warehousing guys who say, you know, if you're going to store stuff here, I'm going to charge you. I don't want to charge yeah. you storage. I want to charge you for moving it. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, if it's if it's a storage, it's storage. But I and the, one other thing, and I think this is what makes it all so difficult. We all love options, right? So. You think about uh, like my glasses, right? There's not one kind of glasses. There's a hundreds of, so a company yeah. says we offer 70 different models. If we sold one pair of glasses, said, hey guys, you guys should all align to what that fat old guy wears, right? So, <laughs> so because he's the most stylish, right? Old guys, plural, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you think about that, it would be easy. But we have, we all want options. And sure. so there's, so in my factory, I have all of these different lenses. I have all these different frames, I'm sure, and fasteners and all the stuff that goes into it. And that's the hard part because I say, well, what should I build today? Is that, I want. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and it's, 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 well, and, and you have that data because you have the POS data, you have the browsing data, you actually have trend data. So you actually know what glasses are in style, which are going out of style. But if you look at this, this e-commerce world that, that us Americans, but the Western world lives in where everything's just drop shipped to your house. In a way it's amazing because you have VCs plowing money into all of these last mile companies, but really e-commerce is, if you think about it in a big perspective, e-commerce is just the last mile, really the last 10 feet or the last five feet. Right. That's just slapped onto someone else's supply chain. Right. You know, right. if you look at, X percent of those goods that are sitting off of Los Angeles and Long Beach port, what are they? They're basically just, they're floating, they're floating storage for a lot of e-commerce companies. Cause right. whether you get it in three days or 13 days, as long as you're happy with when you get it and it's what you want, I don't have to deal with a supply chain. Someone else right. has dealt with that cost right. and I'm making money and margin on the front end. And, right. and the problem is people in supply chain logistics and manufacturing, they're the ones that bear the brunt. They're the ones that have to do more with less and deal with it. And in non-COVID times, we all forget that, right? Chicken shows up at the store, the toilet paper's there, the glass is there, the cement's there. We're happy. We almost never see disruptions. But we forget that every day in logistics and supply chain, everyone's putting out fires everywhere because right. that's their job. They're trying to hit their KPIs or trying to hit their bonus. CFO is trying to hit his profitability. We just don't see it. And it's when big things like COVID pop up or uh, a big freeze in Texas or a big, a big uh, typhoon in Malaysia or Taiwan that suddenly, or Japan with the nuclear disaster in, in, in semiconductors, that these things happen. And then suddenly consumers are like, oh my God, right. what's, what's, what's disrupted the supply chain? Well, the supply chain's always been inefficient. It's just most of the time it's masked. You guys don't see it, right? But we yeah. all know in the business that it's, it's already a pretty inefficient animal and right. we need to do something sooner. It's all going to fall apart. Right. Well, I think we get better and better, but you know, we've gotten it. So I'll just throw this out there. Order to cash. Let's just say it's 18 weeks for a product. I have, you know, oh, well, it's in my factory. I'm connected, right? My suppliers, I'm not exactly connected to them, but then all my, all my stores or distributors, however I'm selling it, um, with the disconnects just get greater and greater. And it's almost like a tolerance where you build it up, <laughs> you know, you're building up. I'm a little off here, a little off here, a little off here. And by the time you get to the end, you go, I'm really off. And I think, you know, again, throughput is wildly important. We all know that. And I will say this, guys, I'm assuming there's somebody who listens who says, I can do <laughs> throughput. Most cannot do throughput on their own. It is... Yeah. It's one of those things. It's it's one of those things. And again, I was exposed to it. I watched it happen. I probably did it, but I couldn't do it again if you to save my soul. 
And it is taking a whole bunch of data and making better decisions. And those better decisions are going to make us more money. It's that simple. It's, it's that <laughs> and, simple. And reduce that waste. And I think we're going to be, I, I think we'll be able to, in the, right now, be, say this is the biggest savings in your supply chain is throughput. It's not, it's not getting a little less for your truck. I mean, and say, hey, I got that truck for $100 cheaper. That's cool. You're still shipping stuff that is going to never be consumed. Add no value to the consumer. And you're adding more wear and tear to that truck that's being used more frequently to ship things that aren't in need. So it's, again, it just rubber base. And, that, and that's the thing, though. Like if you say they through the distributor, hey, somebody bought it. I don't care. I don't care what happens downstream. But the reality is if we get, can get better at this, we will be putting less stuff on the shelves, less stuff in inventory that we know is never leaving. And uh, again, this is sustainability. If you could run things more efficiently, we see a lot of our customers, they're just, they're misrouting. If you look at 250,000 of their SKUs, like for a supermarket, right? They're misrouting 80% of their SKUs. So while they may be a highly profitable company, they could be 15 to 20% more profitable if they just looked at the simple routing between their, their, their upstream, their warehouses and DCs and their downstream retail. Yeah. This is a good logistic solution too. Yeah. And you look at the majority of their, 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 their truck shipments per month. And they're not actually to their end stores. It's actually a lot of it's just inner DC and inner warehouse transfers because they're shipping the wrong products to the wrong place at the wrong time and then having to, to, to go between stores, which is just milk runs or transfers that don't need to happen, right? You could right. have shipped it to the right place the first time around and, and, and gotten the product to market three days earlier and shaved on trucking, fuel, shipping costs, and oh, by the way, not less 16% to expired goods in the process, right? right? So it's just a purely wasteful. And it's just recognizing that that my it's just making better decisions. And it's and again the the information's there. You could theoretically all of you could make better decisions. You would just have to figure out what system I should be looking at uh, out of the dozens of systems that are out there in your supply chain. But what your throughput does is say we will pull the right information. And that's it's not it's it's a forecast in a set fact, but it's demand sensing. So it's up to date. If I'm selling. If I'm selling this much of this and it's 10% more than yesterday, I get that, right? And I, I get that trend line. It is. And it's, it's, if you really think about it, it's a triple bottom line impact because it's not just more profitable and better for the bottom line, which means the rest of the company. It's better for the other stakeholders in society and it's better for the environment. Let's get real. Right. No one wants to waste stuff. For, no one likes throwing out six apples that went bad because we would have rather eaten them. Um, and, and, and six tons of cement that, that, you know, that, that went unused and we got too moist and you couldn't use it, right? And just gets dumped. Yeah. You think about, I think all of us are aware when we get stuff from the store or get something shipped to us, how much waste you have. You throw it in the recycling bin and go, God darn it, what am I doing here? So I'm just <laughs> like, you know, you feel like you're like the worst, worst offender on the planet. Yeah. And that's only a small part of the waste because the waste is usually not coming to the consumer. So we're, we have a huge opportunity here. So I told you I was not going to let you go without talking about the port. So <laughs> the port is kind of a classic uh, throughput problem. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, the, the port is a, a physical manifestation of multiple things. One of them is just a big mismatch between actual demand and, and actual capacity. You've got inefficiencies all along the supply chain. You've got a lot of mundane rules at the American ports that 
we're good enough, even though reports are relatively old in their technology and their processes compared to some of the new reports elsewhere in, in Asia and, and even in the Middle East. And we work with some of the biggest port companies in the world. And you've got a lot of problems. I mean, right now they're what they're adding on a hundred dollar per day incremental fine if you leave if you leave your container for four days. But the problem is you can't get in there to pick up a container. You can't get empty, you can't get in without an empty container on your truck, right? To pick up another container. And the empty containers you can't stack more than two tall. So you have all of these other constraints that are causing no one to be able to even get in to pick up containers. You gotta bring containers, you can't stack empty containers, and, and you're paying fines. And so they just keep it's like you said, it's like it's these things keep building on top of one another. What do you it's have? It's a tolerance, it's a tolerance stack, like if you're building a house, right? <laughs> It is, and they're fo they're not focusing on the main bottleneck. They're focusing on a, a lot of the upstream and downstream results of the bottleneck, right? If you call it the bullet effects, and they're 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 focused on the symptoms and not the cause. And as long as they don't focus on the cause and actually use you know throughput at, throughput with a, a small T, not a big T, type of of economics to focus on how do you actually move more trucks and get more turn of those trucks through the port. They're going to continue to have 80, 90, or 100 of those things stacked offshore. Right. If you look at other ports that are out there in the world, it's not a matter of running 24 hours that allows you to move more ships, right? That's one way to brute force it. But it's other constraints further down that don't allow you to move more trucks in and out of the gates, to handle more containers at once, to store more containers higher, and to actually move containers off-site to a, a third-party buffer storage community. You, know, you could take these things and move them 100 miles inland, right, right. and have trucks pick them up there. But there's various reasons that that's not happening, which we won't go into. So it's it's a mess of our own making. I don't know if they suspended hours of service for drivers who go to the port. I think they did for moving vaccines before. But that would add, what, 4 or 5% of capacity right there. Yeah, and, and it really becomes, you know, it's it's the take the port itself as the key constraint, not even the subpart. Just say that's the bottleneck. Right. If you look, why did that bottleneck happen? It's because... People shifted their consumption patterns because they were at home. They weren't spending nearly as much on services and experiences because we weren't going out, but we were spending a lot more on, e on, on electronic commerce and other commerce that allows us to send things in. And then as the economy picked back up, nothing, nothing was ready to pick up the slack there. So it, it's really a, deploy, deploy, a supply and demand mismatch at the macro level. But at, at the micro level in that bottleneck, you've got sub bottlenecks that are causing this entire problem. And if you don't address that, this is going to continue to happen until it works its way through the system slowly. Right. And you can't just snap your fingers and say 24 hours is going to make the problem go away because, again, that's that's just a symptom. That's not the cause. Right, right. right. <laughs> and and what, you, what you're always trying to do in, in systems is you want to have a pull, right? So the demand is here. And I don't make it, I don't make it hoping that somebody buys it. I make it because the demand signals are telling me to make it. And, and that's what you want in your factory, but it's also what you want in your supply chain flow. Is it, you talk about that flow in a lot of ways, the flow is, is, is pulling, right? Not, not pushing. <laughs> if, if you're using AI on your existing data sets, you're using what's called demand sensing. If you do demand sensing, you're actually pulling capacity through your entire supply chain as opposed to pushing things through that you think are going to make it. And it's a much more efficient way to run a supply chain. So make it as simple as possible. You don't have to mention any names, but give us an example of how this can work and, and make companies more money and reduce the waste that they have in their systems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the things I look at is if you go on a two to three year digital transformation type of journey, few companies can afford that. They don't have the excess cash and you're going to spend a ridiculous amount of money 
on something that may or may not have benefits in the future. And we say, listen, you've got all the data. So whether it's, it's, it's using a tool like us or using someone else, but if you're using that data more efficiently to make better decisions, do it within like a two or three month type of pilot, right? Say, I'm gonna look at everything I have. I'm gonna look at a specific part of my business, a very specific problem that's top of mind that I wanna, that I wanna tackle. I'm gonna look at the three or four data systems that are around that. And by the way, these may, those may include ERP. Lots of time they exclude Excel spreadsheets, by the way, right? <laughs> Particularly when it comes right. from the CFO in the, in the controller. And let's pull that together and show in, in this pilot the ROI we can get. And typically you want to shoot for an ROI goal at least two to 10 times, right? If I can get two or more times, this project's worth it. If I can get 10 times my ROI in a three month project, it's a home run. I should be reinvesting and taking what I did there and expanding it into other BUs and further up and down the supply so, chain. So when you're talking about the, your return on, on investment for yeah. the, the money spent. So if I got to put two guys on that or one guy half time or whatever it is, I got to be able to say, Okay, I, I got half of Bob's time, and Bob makes a hundred grand a year. I'm going to call that twenty grand that I'm using, and the, the ROI should be what'd you say, two to two to ten times that? Two to ten x. Yeah, I, I say if it's if it's less than two x, it may not be worth your time. If it's ten x or more, it's a home run, and and it's you're going to have a few internal resources. I need half of Bob's time, half half of Jill's time. That's great, and it may cost me I don't know, you know, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. Let's call it a hundred thousand total. But if I could turn around a quarter million to a million dollars in savings off of that and then reproduce that elsewhere, that, that's a natural. I could take that and turn it into, into a full project. So that's what you've been able to do with some of your some of your customers? Yeah, we've actually gone around. We've actually shown customers on three-month pilots that they can save over 400 times ROI, right? Just huge, huge ROIs. There's so much inefficiencies in some of these country, companies that if you can focus on the right low-hanging fruit, you can show a home run right up front. And then you go from that to a, a full enterprise deployment, which is how do I use more data across my supply chain to get even more and more captures? So the output of this is I'm making better decisions that, that make me more money and produce less waste in the system. Yeah, absolutely. This, so throughput is, is it give me a dashboard? How do I, how do I actually make, or is it push the information into my system? Yeah. I mean, no one needs another control shower with 700 KPIs that no one <laughs> understands, right? Like we've, we've all seen those for the last 20 years. You know, it's uh, no, it, what we look at is it's, it's a very simple, you have your command center, right? You call it your dashboard. That's showing you across my entire supply chain. Where am I making money? Where am I losing money? Where are the bottlenecks I should be focused on? What are the recommendations around these specific problems when I drill down into each one of them? And then what are the KPIs around that? And how much money could I be saving on an estimated basis? And the nice thing about AI is it can crunch all this data and actually make right. predictions. It can show your demand tomorrow, next week, right. next month, next quarter, right. which other systems are using assumptions in old data to try to do that. But as we all know from investors, right? Past performance is not indicative of future returns. <laughs> Neither is the supply chain. Right. And, you know, when we get to this magical place where from order to cash, end to end, I have not only do I'm connected, I have visibility, I'm able to collaborate, I'm able to make better decisions every step of the way. And again, we're never going to get to a place where it's um, doesn't require a little collaboration, not, not anytime soon, right? We'll be there at some point so we can make those decisions, but we're not there now. What we have is a whole bunch of, you said, local optimums. So I have a WMS, I have a TMS, I have ERPs. What you're able to do is say, 
you're not you don't have end-to-end -end visibility yet but we can pull information from all these different systems spit it out and allow you to make better decisions that are going to save make you a lot of money and save the planet a lot of trash <laughs> yeah it's it's a it's a triple win and it's it's really just using your data more intelligently to get better operational and business and financial results that's that, that's why people always say like hey data's the new oil that's the silicon valley thing for the last five six years i go yeah that's great <laughs> but the thing about oil and petroleum products, if you don't refine it into something, you don't have anything, right? It's just oil. That's right. all it is. It doesn't do anything on its own really besides lubrication. Even then, you got to have the right type of refinement. Right. So we say take the data you have and make some sense of it. And again, no one wants to sit there with a slide rule or their fingers or even a calculator or a spreadsheet and try to try to crunch 2 billion rows of data in real time. Why would you? It, it's, it's, it makes no sense. It's not scalable. So let the machines do the work, let the software do the work, and let the humans take the outputs and implement them because that's what we're great at. We're good at making judgment decisions. Right. And I'll throw this out there just because I'm familiar a little bit with throughput from my past life uh, in, as a lean practitioner. Uh, we Sometimes that, that information is like GPS data. You ever be driving somewhere and it says turn right here, and you're like, no, I know it's I know it's over there. I'm not turning right. I know it's right over there. And you follow, and you're like, uh, and then you don't listen to GPS, and you do it your way because you know better than GPS. Because we're later, and then you're, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't happen to women, but it happens to men all the time. Oh, you don't listen. You don't listen. And, or so I've been told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, bring. Could you go to your wife? Is your wife home? <laughs> so, no, and it's it's interesting because it's the same thing. Sometimes it's counterintuitive that you turn left to go right, and throughput information sometimes is the same way. Where it might tell you, oh, by the way, this this product line, you've never made any money on it, and you go, oh no, 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 you don't understand. Our customers asked for it. We sell a lot of it, and at some point, you have to go through it step by step, and somebody goes. Here I'll show you. You don't make money on these seventeen SKUs, <laughs> and yeah. it's a it's a comeuppance. But it's guys, it's the right way. And I've always said this ever since I worked in throughput. Little T, not yeah. the big T, <laughs> is that it's it's the right way to do it. But it's not easy. It's it's got a lot of nuances, and it's easier it's easier to just do it the conventional way that we know has been disproven in a lot of ways. Well, as they say, yeah, t t tell me how you're going to measure me and I'll tell you how I act. Right. And if you tell me I'm going to get, I'm going to get my bonus based on how many widgets I produce, I'm going to work right. like hell to produce that many widgets. But I may, I may be, I may be, you know, building up massive inventory in the warehouse. It's just taking up space and it's not moving to market. Right. So I'm not helping anyone downstream and I'm not helping the company out really. So you can then adjust. Once you know on a per skew basis, what's profitable, what's not, how you can change things, how you can understand the most efficient routes, where, where your ODIF is high or low and where your cost to ship is high or low, and you get those recommendations to, to reorient certain things, then you can change KPIs and say, hey, you know, just having a 95% OEE, you know, uptime on your machines doesn't really make sense if that machine's producing the wrong good. Why don't you switch lines and build something else for half the time because right. that other good is very profitable, maybe more profitable. It's the local optimum. Again, I've, I've optimized on the local level, but it doesn't work on the, on the, on the macro. So let's wrap this bad boy up. I know we've gone all over the place, but talk a little bit about what's the sweet spot for your company throughput AI. Yeah. I mean, we look at anyone who makes something or anyone who moves something is going to want to look at software like ours that helps you optimize your supply chain, right? You've got data. 
right? If you look at it, every company out there that's 500 workers or more has data. They make up 48% of the global economy, by the way, right? Companies of 500 people or more, even though they're just 1% of the companies. So your company, if you're listening to this, you've got data, you've got smart people, your CFO wants to make more money, you'd like to make more money and work less. And the reality is if you use that data better, you can make better decisions and actually get more profitability with less waste and a lower workload which is a win-win for everyone, right? right. So, you know, we look at uh, food, ag, building materials, cement, electronics, automotive manufacturers, you know, whatever is in demand, which right now kind of everything is in demand. Right. You have this massive demand, but but the reality is a lot of it uh, or a certain subset of it's not worth shipping, right? You can actually focus on your better earners and get more inventory turns and higher profitability and weed out some of your losers. And again, we have that ABC XYZ analysis and all that built into our platform. So we make it really easy and turnkey for folks to understand where they're making and losing money and where they're leaving money on the shelf or in their supply chain so they can make it. And you know, for us, it's for the leaders, people who want to leapfrog and be more profitable and have a better workforce is better. If you're just going to be a laggard, and drag your feet and do the same old thing, you're going to get the same old result. It may be good enough for now, but eventually those leaders are going to, are going to romp you. And that, that's true whether you're incumbent or whether you're a 500-person company. This, this takes us, this is one of those emperor new clothes moments because, again, nobody wants, to, nobody wants you to come in and say, hey, how long have you been doing it this way? And you go, oh, five years. Well, this is how much it costs you, right? Nobody wants nobody wants to have that conversation, right? But the people who do have that conversation say, hey, we're going to start, we're on a constant quest. We've been on it for a long time to get better and better and better. And throughput was always out there. I didn't, again, I just say it was too difficult for most of us to adapt to. And it, and it was manual. That was the problem. That's what manual. I meant. That's what I meant. It, it, it just like, <laughs> we're, we've gotten used to the easier approach. So, so you mentioned that, and people who move this. So, let, let's just say I'm a logistics company, and I've got more than 500 guys, and I say I, I just move what they tell me. I don't. I'm not. I'm not telling my customer not to move that because it's not profitable. I don't know what's profitable for them. I'm moving it because they asked me to move it. Why would I do anything different? Yeah. So we, we've helped quite a few uh, logistics and transportation companies and freight forwarders. And what's interesting is they actually have a heck of a lot more data than they think on their invoices, their bill of laden, their internal, their 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 breakdowns per customer, the frequency of shipments, what's on there. And when you start to stitch that data together and show them actually who their most profitable customers are, who their best paying customers are, how do you match the best shippers to the best the best, the best truckers. There's a lot of, of low hanging fruit, even in what seems like low margin, simple businesses in very simple data sets, actually, right? Lots of times we're just uploading tons of invoices and, uh, and bill of laden, bill of shipping that people have never looked at, right? Because who's going to look at a hundred thousand or a million or 10 million invoices. So would you, would you go back and say, let me look at the last three months of business or how do you, how do you tell them this is the opportunity? Yeah, what's what's optimal typically, whatever data you have, you start with. But what's optimal just because of COVID having put such right. a big uh, uh, such a big kink, if you will, in the supply chain yep. um, and really changed kind of the mind. The last three years is helpful. But again, most companies have years, if not decades of information stored. So that's not a problem. Most of them don't even know they have it, by the way. It's just sitting there in some table in SAP or it's sitting there in some Parker Hannifin database or some TMS system. And they look at the IT folks to extract it. But the reality is most of them have access to the data. 
a lot of them pull it into Excel spreadsheets through macros and try to make sense of it with pivot tables and little macros they built. Right. But we can grab that exact same data and a lot more of it and combine it with other data with the throughput.ai tool and then surface those better results to them and say, hey, these are the folks, these are the shippers, these are the freighters. These are the these lanes. Are the these are the lanes you should be swimming in because if you're not, you're just going to keep doing the same thing you're always doing. And oh, by the way, you got a lot more competitors than you did before. Right. And right. they're starting to play with new tools and they're getting better results. So if you're not keeping up with the Joneses and actually trying to leapfrog them, you know, you can't go hire five data scientists and expect magic because data scientists right. are smart people who look at data, but they're not machines. They can't only look at so much data. At some point they got to run it through tools and those people are very expensive. And the thing is you've got really smart people in your company who know how to do all this. They just need the data at their fingertips to make better decisions. Right. Or in the case of the CFO, sometimes to justify those decisions. Because if I can't justify to the CFO why I need a half million dollars to do something differently in my warehouse, because I think it's going to have a four, five, six X effect in a year from now, why would the CFO ever okay that budget? But if I could show you a simulation off your own data about how you can get 10X off of that same project, that's something the CFO has to look at because they've got quantitative proof with your own data that's showing that why these projects that most of us know work are also justifiable and fundable. Right. You know what? We've talked about AI on this po podcast a few times, but I've always said is we all, we've always had data, right? Not as much, not as much. And it was in cabinets, right? So it'd be a file, right? So, and I remember for a long time, getting something off the computer, printing it out, putting it in a file folder, putting it in a cabinet, right? And yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And, and taxes, by the way. <laughs> I, I always joke anything important becomes digital for me and but we've we've always had data not as much as we have now but we've always had data and and we we never had the computing power though to, to do crunch numbers and we never really had uh, the algorithm right so all you need to do AI like those analysis you need some sort of algorithm you need a lot of power and you need data and to some extent our data has been stuck in silos right stuck in, and now if you can pull from those silos into a tool like Throughput and it says, hey, I'm going to run a million iterations of that and I'm going to spit back out the reality, we think, oh, well, that's AI. Who knows? Guys, we we kind of push back a little bit, but you don't know AI is being used everywhere around us right now. I, I, I said it a few times on my podcast, it paid off a credit card when I came back from a trip. And then right away, I got like I don't know, a couple grand extra on my credit limit. And I was like, well, that was very generous and I didn't want it, but uh, I'm not going to give it back. Right. And, and I remember somebody said, yeah, that's um, AI. It's now AI. person wouldn't do that because they go, I'm not giving Joe 40% more credit. Well, by wow. the way, I've been paying it. So it's not as if it wasn't a good decision, but AI made those decisions. It's well, easy. You used to have AI. to call it up, right? You used to have to call up and ask for it. Oh yeah, they'd say, "I want to look you eye to eye. I want to, I want to feel your handshake and know that you're yeah. a man of character and that you'll pay your damn bills." <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very, very funny uh, Eddie Murphy SNL skit from the '80s, as I recall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. The, the, yeah. So you know, if you think about it, AI is just another tool, right? It's supposed to be seamless in the background. If you think of it from a consumer point of view, when I ask Siri or Google how to get directions from point A to point B, I could care less what algorithms are. You know, all I know is that I can right. trust them to get me around the worst traffic right. and get me from A to B as quickly as possible, right? The same things with, with businesses, with logistics or a supply chain. 
I don't need to know what the algorithms and the tools are doing. Just surface me the tools, the front end I need to very quickly get the answers I want, the recommendations, so I can decide which ones to put in the action. Because right. I can make the judgment call, but I don't want to crunch billions of rows of data through hundreds of algorithms to make a decision right. on what's the best way to solve exactly. the problem. All right, enough of my blather here. So <laughs> Seth, your, your sweet spot is anybody who builds something, anybody who's moving something, anybody who's part of these complex supply chains. So what's the best way to reach out and talk to you? Yeah, I mean, if you make something, if you move something, uh, if you've got scattered data, which all of us have, and you want better results, I mean, reach out to me. I'm Seth, S-E-T-H, at throughput.ai. I'm also on LinkedIn. Reach out to me there, Seth Page, uh, P-H-E, yeah, very I'll, simple. I'll put, a, I'll, put a link to, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, and I'll put a link to your website. You guys attending any conferences yet? Oh, my gosh, yeah. We've actually almost won a dozen awards this year uh, for supply chain and logistics uh, and, uh, and, and from some green stuff as well. We've got some webinars coming. I think Ollie's speaking with you in about two yes. weeks, right? Uh, the CEO yep. and the founder of the company. Um, we've got some other. I will put that in the links too. Yeah, I'm talking to Ollie on uh, November 18th, and we're talking about demand sensing. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and it's demand sensing in VUCA times because or demand planning in VUCA times because we are in this this volatile, uncertain, complex. Ambi ambiguous ambiguous, yeah. ambiguous time where the information that we're getting is just even crazier than usual. Yeah. And if you want to have demand sensing, or, or you want if you want those forecasts to be right, it has to have demand sensing. It has to be up to date. Yeah, because the his historical data that so many people fall back on when they just do basic demand forecasting with assumptions based on past those don't work anymore, right? There's right. so much change in, in demand going on in real time in the world and so much inefficiency and just bullet effects in real time in the supply chain that if you're not looking at real time demand or near real time demand, you're really going to be shooting the bullet in the wrong place, right? right. It's, it's, like, it's like shooting a canyon across an enemy line without trying to figure out where the hell their tanks are right. <laughs> or where the tanks have been two weeks ago. I guarantee you they aren't right. in the same place today. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah, I'm talking to Ali. I'll put that in the links, and uh, you guys go into in, any other links you give me. I'll put in the show notes. And uh, yeah, this is this is this is not the easiest thing to grasp. And I think you made it real simple for us, though. It's really just comes down to: Do you want to make more money by making better decisions? And I think that's yes, we do. Uh, there's a tool for that. There's a tool, and you don't have to have end-to-end -end information. Whatever information you have, you'll pull from that, and and it gets better every day. Yeah, whatever segment of the supply chain you live in, you've got data sources and you can get better returns. And, and the people who are living it day to day know that. They just don't have the tools to get it done. And the CFO is sitting on a ton of money. And I mean, it, it, if they're not looking at their own supply chain first to unlock money to get better business and financial performance from, then they're doing their investors and their workers and their shareholders and their communities a disservice because that's the first place to look. You shouldn't be squeezing suppliers and vendors and employees first. Those are the last people you squeeze. Get rid, take care of your own house right. before you worry about other people's houses. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Ali, I had him on the podcast before, and he said something along the lines that when he was still working, he said they had been working, not, not at three, but his last <laughs> company. He said that somebody said we need to – lay off a whole bunch of people. And he said, lay off a whole bunch of people. We, we have all this waste in our system. Why lay people off when I can get rid of inventory that, that is a waste? Stop making stuff that we lose money on. How's that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the history of the company with Ollie is interesting because he, he was working and he was doing war zone logistics in, uh, across the Middle East and in, in, in parts of Asia and Europe and, and Russia. And, you know, when you're pulling data from systems, 
in a war zone country, you know, and running it in Excel spreadsheets and, and hack together tools on a hardened Panasonic the laptop, right? If you can make it work there and you're saving tens of millions of dollars for the company and not having to lay people off when oil goes from 100 down to 35 or 40 bucks a barrel, if he could get that done, that was kind of his aha moment six months later. Say, God, if I could do it there, well, you know, while, while, while foreign forces are invading Yemen, I could probably do this in Houston and Memphis and in the, <laughs> right. the Rust Belt and the Northeast and the rest of the world. And and that that's how we that's how we started throughput was saying, hey, you know, I can apply this to this vertical and this vertical and this vertical. And then once you get into TOC and these different theories, you realize that from an AI's point of view, from a data point of view, these are all the same problems. You're you're solving supply chain problems, right? right. It doesn't care if it's cement, if it's oil and gas, or whether it's berries, right? right. Or building materials. It's it's how do you find the most efficient way to make the best products that people want in the most profitable way with the least amount of waste? And there's always an optimal solution for that. You just have to put it into effect. Yeah. And again, you don't want to do the own calculations. You don't want to do the Kentucky windage, right? You want to <laughs> have the system do it. If I never see a slide rule again in my life, I will be a happy man. Let's leave yes, it at exactly. that. Right? We, we, we forgot exactly. that for a reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This, you've, you've, you've simplified this as much as this topic can be simplified. It really just comes down to better decisions and uh, more money. Less less trash, more cash. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Joe. You are the, the logistics of logistics. I actually like to call you the king of the logistics of logistics because you really it's have a, a way kingdom. of... Yeah, you have a great way of framing it and a great way of asking the right questions. And I think, at least for me, I love your podcast because it breaks it down in a language that I can always understand. I appreciate that. I think this is the challenge with our business. There's warehousing guys who work with freight forwarders and trucking companies, but they're not of that business. There's technology guys who are who are great and we need them, but they aren't from logistics. There's yeah, there's every step of the way that the supply chain has people who are specialists in their area, but the challenge is well, that's why we're in these silos. And again, I always try and simplify things because it used to drive me crazy when I was still in the supply chain and logistics, when every meeting you go to, everyone's got a brand new acronym. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Some IT vendors sold them something new, right? (laughs) Well, you just, but you mentioned like on time and info OTIF and it's to be typical. Someone walk in and go, Hey, the OTIF today, blah, blah, blah. And they just get, and you go, wait, what, 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 what is that? Oh, on time and in full. And then they look at you like, oh, my God, you're so out of it. <laughs> yeah, but t- t- take that upstream of the manufacturing guys and gals. And they're, 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 they're living on OEE and MTTR and MTTA. And right. OTIF, OTIF sounds like the elevator they took up, and even though it's OTIF, right. up and downstairs, right? They don't know it. And, and you go further up to the quarries, and they're speaking a different language at the furnaces right. and the, the silos, too. So it's the nice thing is mathematics and data, it's the same in all of them. If you can speak in mathematics and data and tie that together, then it's just a matter of surfacing it in the right way to the right people. And I think that's what folks like us are trying to do is just just simplify it. Yeah, make it accessible because, again, these are this is a solution that we should all be looking at. And, again, 30% of waste, I mean, this cleans up the planet all by itself. If we just yeah. got, if we got 30%, 30, well, we're never going to get rid of all waste, but we could get rid no. of a lot of it. So If you can get rid of two to five at 10-15% over time. I mean, you know, everyone's in Glasgow right now for the right reasons and with the right intent, but a lot of them are solving the wrong problems. They're not even looking right. at the supply chain. They're not even looking at, you know, how, how do we get rid of the waste we already produce before we worry about how much more we're going to have? And it's not just sticking filters on things, right? It's not producing the wrong things to begin with. Right. I think what it needs is it needs innovation. 
and uh, that's what we do here in the biz, the biz world in the supply chain. So anyway, Seth, thank you so much for uh, being on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Joe. And uh, I look forward to the next one after me right. on the way to work. It's a great time to listen to you. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.